the agency is allowed to interpret its own rules and its own rules can get interpreted the way it wants to be. So what would the founding fathers say about that? Well, we shouldn't even have rules be created by an agency and we shouldn't have an agency enforcing those rules. And we certainly shouldn't have an agency having hearings and deciding who wins. The hearing should be in front of a judge that's appointed under the rules in the constitution. The enforcement should be done by a department of the president who's just, it's the law enforcement. And the creating rules is supposed to be done by Congress. This is Monica Perez here with Eric Buchanan, our friend and local or personal uh, constitutional scholar. I, even if he isn't a law professor, I absolutely classify the gentleman scholar as even above reproach more so than the actual professionals. And I recently had a friend, an old friend from my investment banking days text me saying, I love your shows with Eric. I just binge listens to his his series on the Constitution with your friend Clint. It's fantastic stuff. Keep it coming. So, Eric, thank you for being here. Please tell people what you what your day job is and also a little bit about that podcast with Clint and your other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So hi, everybody. My name is Eric Buchanan. My day job is I run a law firm that helps disabled people who've been denied disability benefits from insurance companies. So if Hartford, MetLife, Unum, Paul Revere, one of those companies doesn't pay someone's benefits, we help people all over the United States uh, appeal those claims, take them to court, sue the insurance companies, get those benefits paid whenever we can. Uh, we have five attorneys other than me. Uh, well, actually four, but one just graduated from law school. So hopefully she'll be five by this, hopefully by this fall be five. We also help people with life insurance claims, long-term care claims, and health insurance claims. So we can be found on the World Wide Web at BuchananDisability.com. Uh, so basically, Clint Powell and I started a podcast kind of during COVID uh, with the idea of, uh, we'll call it Up By and For The People, asking the important questions about what's going on in society, what's going on uh, with the Constitution, what's going on in America, trying to present the fair arguments as best we can from both sides. Uh, so we've been doing that every Monday for quite a while. And a, a little while into it, we decided that one of the things that people were complaining about is saying, we need to get rid of the Senate, or we need to get rid of the Constitution, or we don't need free speech, or whatever these arguments are. And I and Clint and I got to talking about the fact that there's a lot of people that just don't understand the Constitution. Even people have been to law school. You and I both took con, con law as a law school class. There's so much we don't cover in those classes. So we decided about a year ago to start going line by line through the Constitution. So up by and for the people, deep dives on the Constitution is every Tuesday. And we started with the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, covered those. That took somewhere around 25 episodes. <laughs> uh, and wow. then we started going through the, the beginning of the Constitution. And we are on up to Article 1, Section 8. And uh, we're actually, I counted, and we're up to to uh, uh, episode 54 is our next episode. I, I sent you an email saying it was 43 yeah. we've done, so it's actually 53 Yeah, my friend said so he far. listens to 30. I thought he got through yeah. the wall, but he they, obviously did not. He's got more to go, but yeah, so, um, the section eight is, that's going to take you a while. We're, that's yeah, enumerated powers, right? <laughs> it's been three episodes already to get through article one, section eight, clause yeah, one. That's incredible. three episodes and it's all in note. No, and- it, it's just so nice of you to do it. It's it's been it's been interesting. I like what you're talking about. So Article One, Section Eight. 
there are 18 clauses. There's actually at least 27 separate powers and each one's taking a full episode. So that's how that's yeah. how deeply we're diving into it. And I find that the Constitution, I, what I discovered long after I took con law was reading the Constitution with a little augmentation, a little research. It's almost like a religious document. Like you can absolutely take the text at its face and have a good faith effort in understanding what it was meant to mean if there's any dispute about reading it on its face. And I find the Constitution is an amazing document and that it stands up to that amazingly well. Even, even the language has not changed so much that it has genuinely different meanings. And I feel like it's so obvious what it's meant to do when you have a good faith effort. So what I think like what makes these fantastic constitutional law professors or Supreme Court justices is their ability to twist up the plain language of this stuff and give it the opposite meaning of what it was intended. And that's why it's important to find people who have integrity. I mean, I have to say of all the people I run into, there are plenty of them that I have no doubts about. There's some people I'm just like, well, this person maybe seems to have a hidden agenda. I mean, I have absolutely no doubt that you truly are endeavoring to understand this and share your understanding of it out of love of country and just personal integrity. And I really appreciate it. And I want to say one more thing, which is I was on a, a podcast recently called Hawk It. And the guy like asked you questions like, what's your favorite movie, whatever. So he asked me, Amit, his name is, he asked me like, what four problems would I want to solve if I could solve four problems in the world? And I said, screens, like I think the, the impact of screens on our kids like worries me more than anything. It's like you see, you call it a homeless problem. Really just the streets are littered with people who are forced to or whatever, through bad policy, I would say, or bad culture or whatever, live the life of like impoverished, disabled people in a society that just isn't occurring naturally. Like that's drugs. Satanism, this idea that like do what thou wilt, you know, is the whole of the law that people just can't understand self-sacrifice and it's just total hedonism, soulless, whatever. I think that's bad. And the the fourth thing, not in order, I said, you know, if they if we could be be it one thing or another, as Lysander Spooner would say, and he's like, the Constitution had this bad result. I actually would say, and I think we agree with each other on this, that if the Constitution could be truly restored and honored and lived up to, to its letter, we would not only, I would say, like, have basically, if you could do it, I'm not saying it ever was done. I'm not saying it ever could be done. I'm just saying if you could do it, like, I think that that document would have resulted in a good, strong, prosperous country and a beacon for the entire world. I think the entire world would be a different and better place if the Constitution were adhered to according to its own terms and just in this country. And I, and so I feel like I've defended, even though you know I have anarchist and agorist leanings, I, I would take this compromise. Yeah, I, I like thinking about it that way. One of the ways that I look at it is, I credit George Friedman wrote a book uh, called The uh, Storm Before the Calm that talks about the <laughs> cycles of American history. Whether you believe in the cycles or not, it's an interesting observation that it took about 80 years for the United States to go from the United States R, people who would actually yes. use the R verb instead of the yes. H verb, then the Civil War. And this, after yeah. the Civil War, we had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, and then the United States became you know, more of a federal system the federal okay. government became more powerful and then skip ahead another about 80 years and we had the great depression and we had uh we had all of fdr's moves to make it yeah. a giant 
federal country. Unbelievable. And that's kind of what we can talk about today is how the Constitution kind of got ground under the wheels of modern progress in the 20th century. But I also th suggest, and before we get into it too deep a dive, it's been about 80 years. And we now have a Supreme Court that has six fairly conservative justices. So I'm hoping in one of our upcoming episodes, we can talk about how I think the Supreme Court today yeah. might be kind of reaching that 80 year high watermark of the administrative state and saying, hey, we need to actually pay more attention to what the Constitution says. Boy, um, that would be great. I, I, I believe in the conspiracy, the grand conspiracy that we are marching towards world government. And there is it's going to be pretty hard to stop. But it would be nice if those guys like kick the can of tyranny a couple of decades. That would be nice. But we're not there yet. Right. We're going to take we're going to go from we're going to talk about the peak of the Supreme Court activism. Right. That I think I, that's how I would like to describe it, if that's not inaccurate. And then that means to me when you say Supreme Court activism, it's what I learned in con law. What they said is it's a policy decision. Like, so you would say, well, that isn't what the Constitution could possibly say or mean. It totally goes against previous precedents and the understanding of what it meant. A professor would say it was a policy decision. Yeah, absolutely. So the argument that if, if, if you're before the Supreme Court and you're making an argument about whether this policy that I want to defend is constitutional or not, and part of your argument is it's a good idea. That's wrong. It doesn't matter how good an right. idea is. And the question is, does it fit within the Constitution or not? And unfortunately, I think I'm oversimplifying things. We'll talk about this a lot. But in the mid-20th century especially, uh, the idea became ingrained in the ideas of lawyers that made their way to the Supreme Court that things had changed so much. The country had gotten so big, so complex. The world had gotten to be a modern world. We were having world wars. We've got uh, the potential of nuclear holocaust. We've got to have a national defense system to, to get through the Cold War. All of those things going on that, well, let's quit thinking about these old founding fathers' ideas the way they thought of it. We need to basically either ignore or reinterpret the Constitution in ways that fit, quote, the modern progressive world, that we just stop it, putting rules in place that are going to stop us from solving problems. And I would say that there are, that the founders did anticipate the ability to work, to have the even just the 50 states alone gives people that freedom. They, there's like letters of mark and reprisal for things like terrorism. <laughs> like there is, it's all in there. There is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, I, I would. I agree with you that generally speaking, the Constitution, as written, would solve. We would have the ability to solve most of the world's problems. We don't need to ignore it, and occasionally we might need to amend the Constitution. Uh, you know, the Thirteenth Amendment. Who can complain about that? We got rid of slavery. That was the right thing to do. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment guaranteeing civil rights to everybody in the United States. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that too. That might be a purpose for us to all be under one Constitution in one country is to have those guaranteed civil rights. But we still have the individual states that can be the laboratory of democracy that can decide if California wants to outlaw gas-powered cars, have at it, California. If you don't want to put up with that, move to Nevada or Tennessee. Move to Tennessee, and we're still going to have gas guzzlers until the, 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 you know, the end of time if we can get away with it. But um, that federalizing the, the civil rights thing can be a slippery slope to that because people will say I have a right to clean air or whatever, in which case I would say your property right prevents people from polluting on your property. So I, I don't, you know, I'm not, uh, 
I think less is more in a way, but I do believe in the Bill of Rights. Some people will say they shouldn't even have put that in because it makes it look like the your rights are limited. And I would say the Bill of Rights is strictly a restraint, overt restraint on government. It is not actually a definition of your rights. It's a definition of what the government cannot do because they have the power to do that stuff. So, okay, so what's the first, where are we? Give me a date, a year, so a case. let's take a, take a little step back just to recap kind of where we closed out the last time you and I talked, because I think there's there's two important things that happened in the 1930s under FDR that really significantly changed the course of the 20th century. Before that, we had Woodrow Wilson and his ideas. We even had Teddy Roosevelt and his ideas. And their ideas were essentially that if we have more experts in charge, it's a progressive modern world that we need to quit looking at the Constitution as a limit on government powers, but instead just basically ignore it. And those ideas had been pushed by Woodrow Wilson and even by Teddy Roosevelt. And in the changing world of the early 20th century, that kind of stuff was was kind of fashionable and cool, et cetera, et cetera. Um, by the 1930s, though, there, there had been some regression back to a limited Constitution under Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover and the Supreme Court. And they'd been putting limits in place. And then we had the disaster of 1929, that fall when the stock market crashed and the money supply got shrunk. And we could have a whole separate conversation about the causes of the Great Depression. Was it really a manufactured emergency? Was it really, did we need to have that happen? Why did it all happen? The bottom line was everybody agreed it was emergency. FDR gets elected in 1932. And when he starts putting all these big government programs in place where he's going to use the federal government to solve all these problems, to control how much wheat people can grow on their own property, to control how who what the price of coal is in the coal industry. There's just example after example of programs that he wanted to put in place that were somehow going to fix the economy, provide these jobs. Some of them were just job giveaways, like the Civilian Conservation Corps. Some of them, the Tennessee Valley Authority, might have had the benefit of slowing down some flooding, but still is it constitutional, those kind of questions. But there were lots and lots of programs being put into place, and the Supreme Court, ultimately for some of those programs, would slap them down and say, no, that's not constitutional until 1937. And the big thing that happened in 1937 is FDR and the Democrats who controlled Congress had basically threatened to add six seats to the Supreme Court to make it grow from nine to 15. The actual proposal of the court packing was a new justice for every justice over 70 years old. And that would give the ability of FDR to appoint basically six justices, which would, in, in their mind, hopefully switch the majority to be uh, in favor of all these big government programs. In 1937, the Supreme Court suddenly started approving some of these big government programs. They were also approving minimum wage laws in states that they had thrown out before, that kind of stuff. And the comedians at the time called it the switch in time that saved nine. So the, the change in the makeup of the Supreme Court in their attitude because of the threat of court backing, I consider to be a watershed moment in the mid 20th century that effectively opened the floodgates for large federal programs and the approval of the Supreme Court for the administrative state for the giant deep state we have today all suddenly became open and available to the government to do because the Supreme Court was basically scared of court backing. The next thing that happened Starting in 1937, right around the time of court packing, Hugo Black became FDR's first court appointment. He ends up getting to appoint a total of nine justices. One of them ends up retiring in office, so he ends up controlling. FDR has eight seats by 1943. 
So the Supreme Court, by, within that short time period of about six or seven years, totally switches over. Eight of the nine justices are all appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So That's by almost that, a danger to having more than two terms. Yeah, and so remember, he was first elected in 1932, re-elected 1936, so he should have been dubbed 1940 if he traditionally served two terms, just sort of like the president George Washington set. But there was no constitutional provision back then, so he ran again in 1940 and won. He ran again in 1944 and won. Well, by in his third term is when he got a chance to appoint uh, one, two, three, four of the Supreme Court justices that ultimately served under him. So that third term really turned the court over. But they were already going that way after the threat of court packing. So there's two big cases that came out during World War II. One of them we've talked about and one of one one I want to introduce for today, and then we'll talk about what the effect that had later in the 20th century. The case that came out in 1943 and then was reheard and heard in 1947, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think it's such a watershed case that I'd also like to kind of rediscuss this. It's SEC versus Chenery. It's the Chenery case. When you and I were in law school, we learned the basic Chenery rule. Chenery 1 said, if a federal agency has the authority to regulate a certain area of the law, a certain area of commerce, then when if the person who's being regulated complains about it, when it gets to court, the agency has to defend their decision below in using the same reason in court. They can't make they can't make up a new reason when they get to court. That's the Chenery One rule. But then Chenery Two happens in 1947 and basically says. But it's okay if the agency makes up rules as part of the process of doing the decision-making. So essentially, the agency has the power to be the judge and the jury in the case and the legislature to pass laws in the processes of deciding the case. So let's, I, I, let's talk about this case for a second in a little more detail than we did before. The, the issue in, in SEC versus Chenery was FDR's, Democrat-controlled Congress passed something called the Public Utility Holding Company Act of 1935. It basically nationalized and regulated highly all utilities. So by this point in the 20th century, there were private water companies, there were private electric companies, there were private bus companies. All of these companies were operating under their state laws, but if they had utilities that covered more than one state, some different states would have to regulate different parts of it. And so they were growing so much and considered to be so powerful as public utilities, the Democrat Congress under FDR said, we're going to regulate this and we're going to put a couple of rules in place. One rule is you have to have a separate corporation that controls that utility in each state. And there can only be two layers of ownership. So you can't have it be under a holding company and in multiple layers. And basically they also said you have to create a new corporation to control these entities that that has built into it ways for the government to regulate your utilities more the idea that if you have a water company if you have an electric company you are a public utility and you can't just have your own corporation do whatever it wants we're putting in special federal rules that of the way you set up your corporation that was the idea and what ends up happening that is so kind of shocking and disturbing about this case is the, the family that owned the water company, the Chenery Corporation, basically they were told, you can still own the new utility, you just have to sell the old one out at government-required expenses. Foreman, government offered money, basically, what the government was willing to pay for it. 
and then uh, you could you could then buy the stock in the new company and still have a certain way of doing the stock. As that was happening, though, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is given the power under this uh, Public Utility Holding Company Act to decide how it works, they started changing the rules in the middle of the process. They wouldn't tell the Chenry Company what exactly they had to do in order to take their money out of their old, selling the old stock and buy the new controlling stock. And every time they tried to do it a certain way, the SEC told them you're not allowed to do it that way. Why? Was there corruption afoot? That sounds like SEC, a way to the SEC claimed, them. So the SEC claims essentially by the time he gets to the Supreme Court that this family was trying to manipulate the system. The family's defense was, what system? What tell us what rule <laughs> you violated? Yeah. And so the and so the, the argument for the family was the SEC is making up the rules as they go along. And so when the case gets back to the Supreme Court in 1947, so by 1947, uh, we also have Harry Truman, who's another Democrat who was FDR's vice president, has now put two more justices on the Supreme Court. So it is now totally nine justices that were appointed either by FDR or Truman. Uh, everybody's been appointed by a new dealer, basically. And so it gets back up to the Supreme Court again. And the Chenry Court, and this is one of those cases that you and I probably struggled with in law school trying to understand this, basically said that it's okay for the agency to create new rules during its administrative law process. So when it's holding hearings and it's holding a, an administrative agency's version of a trial, it's okay to use that trial as a way for an agency to determine what the rules are that it wants to enforce because it's the expert, because it's supposed to understand how to have these corporations be set up. And so it's allowed to create new rules in the middle of the game, and it can overturn uh, a private company's stock ownership based on rules that the company didn't even know they needed to follow at the time they were buying the stock. My problem with all of this is that I like the common law system. I like cases to be adjudicated as actual disputes arise. But the regulatory state is like a statutory system. And the administrative state at the federal level is totally unconstitutional regulatory system because that is not how we were set up. I like dealing with problems, legitimate dispute, disputes as to encroachment, everything. I just, this whole thing, I hate it from top to bottom. Good. <laughs> I, do I do too, but let me kind of give, so the, the argument that you and I might make and the founding fathers, I think, would have made was we set up the Constitution to have separation of powers. The power to make the rules is in the hands of Congress, and that requires both the Senate and the House of Representatives to agree. The Senate in the old days representing the states, the House representing the people. Now the senators are still elected by the states, I mean by the people, but that still has to pass both houses to get passed to become a rule. The president, as the executive branch, enforces the rules, and the judicial branch gets to decide if the rules were broken or not, or if the rules follow the Constitution. That's the idea of the separation of powers. What's the idea of the administrative state? You create these expert agencies that are supposed to be, Woodrow Wilson kept telling us, bureaucratically neutral and politically neutral. They were just how <laughs> to better do stuff, right? And, and in order to give them the power to fix stuff, they would have the power to make rules, so they act like the legislator, enforce the rules, so they act like the executive branch, and determine if somebody broke the rules, so they actually have judicial powers. All at once, all rolled into, all rolled into one. The argument you might get from, I think, the, the probably the fairest-minded of the progressive liberals in the 1930s that would 
to your point of let's use the common law, well, judges don't have the expertise it takes to run a complicated electrical grid or water grid system. And they need to, there needs to be somebody who has the expertise. But to your point about the common law, judges develop the common law by looking at cases, then following the next, the next judge would follow what the previous judge had decided on a similar set of facts. And that's how the common law was developed. So these administrative agencies basically need the ability to develop a common law of how you regulate utilities, in this case, a water company. I happen to think that's bogus because this, the, the founding fathers said, no, 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 the power to make any law lies in the hands of the judiciary, only under Article Three judges. So the judges are separate under their part of the Constitution. If you want to decide how to regulate something, you need to have a set of rules created by Congress under Article One. That's their separate power. And maybe if they want to delegate it, the ability to enforce that or maybe around the edges decide how to how to interpret certain rules that might be okay you combining article one and article two powers article one being the legislator and article two being the president and the ability to enforce stuff but that's not what happened starting by the 1930s what this chenery case basically says is it is okay to give a blank check to an administrative agency to go figure out what rules it's going to enforce and not even begin to figure out those rules till it's already enforcing them on this private family's company after the fact and telling them they have to undo uh, what they did and, and that they can't actually buy stock in the company that they've controlled for generations or and that they and that they were being forced to switch over to this new form of corporation. And this is the case where you and I talked about this before, but I think this is a crucial one to remember. Even one of FDR's own appointees, Justice Jackson, writes a dissent saying this doesn't make any sense. In the first case, we said they had to they had to state what rules they were implying, and then they could only defend in court on those rules. Now you're saying they can make up new rules below and then enforce the, based on the new rules they're making up during the uh, adjudicative process. And Justice Jackson said, "I'm going to quote Mark Twain: the more you the more you explain it to me, the less I understand it." <laughs> I love that. And that gets the ball rolling. That's what I was saying about they 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 are masterful at twisting stuff around. Yeah, so that's the Chenery case, which is kind of the foundation of the modern administrative state. The other case is not an administrative law case, but I just want to talk about this for a second. What else they decided in that same time frame right in the middle of World War II that basically uses the Constitution like toilet paper? <laughs> the Korematsu case. Do you remember what that is? I definitely remember seeing it, but come on, you're just so a lot of cobwebs between Mr. I think his first name, now. David, David Korematsu, I think was his first name. He had an Americanized name. He was an American citizen. He was born in the United States. The court holds there's no question of his loyalty to the United States. What was his crime? His crime was being a Japanese descendant American citizen who didn't leave one of the West Coast states when he was ordered to by the general defending the West Coast of the United States during the era when they rounded up Japanese citizens, Japanese Americans, and people of Japanese descent who were American citizens and moved them out of California, Oregon, and Washington during World War II. Yeah, now I it, remember. It's a horrible episode in American history. There's some good movies about it to do some good research. 
I have to interject this for people to look into. Jeff Adachi, who died under extremely uh, suspicious circumstances in San Francisco, was the rare publicly elected public defender. And he had, I think all of his grandparents were in internment camps at that time. And this was a guy like my, my example of just super liberal guy, but integrity beyond reproach. So yeah, just shout and, out to Jeff Adachi. And one of my law school classmates uh, who's uh, practicing law in Denver right now, um, she told me the story one time that her dad's earliest memory is uh, seeing that the, the, some horses they had on the side of the building at the UCLA uh, Coliseum uh, when he was three or four years old and he was being forced to sleep outside on the middle of the football field of the Coliseum because they were rounding up all the Japanese Americans. And that, like one of his earliest memories is basically being a prisoner in the United States for the crime of being Japanese. Um, be, 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 for being a Japanese descended U.S. American citizen. Yeah, that's the, the super messed up. And my father always taught me, it's like, you know, the, despite all that, the num the most decorated battalion or whatever in the U.S. Army World War II was the all Japanese battalion. The four forty second Go for Nice Brigade. Yeah, they they uh, they are. Yeah, there's a great history. It's a good movie about the movie about that is called Go for Broke. Um, and so oh, yeah, I didn't they, even know. I mean, I learned this at his knee. He was in World it, War II. My dad. yeah, they were the most decorated unit in the U.S. Army in World War II, and they fought in Italy and later in 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 France, and they were incredible. So let's get to the Supreme Court case very quickly. The Supreme Court basically says racial treatment, treating Americans differently based on race is subject to, quote, the most rigid scrutiny. But the interest in preventing sabotage and espionage allowed Congress to grant to the military to the, pa the power to decide who could remain in the threatened areas. They didn't do that to anybody who was Italian or German descent on the East Coast. Yeah, which is or Romanian, which was another country that was on the side of the Axis at the time. Wow. But they and they didn't do it in Hawaii either because there were so many Japanese in Hawaii that they, and they didn't really have a place to ship them. And if they'd rounded up all the Japanese Hawaii, there wouldn't anybody left to do anything. But in California Perfect. and Oregon and Washington State, where they were significant numbers but still a small part of the population. And by the way, some of them were growing oranges and really valuable property just outside of where, uh, where in Los see, Angeles stuff saying. was starting to grow. This carte blanche to the regulatory state is so such a moral hazard. So the Supreme Court basically goes to the Supreme Court. And in 1944, so this is between Chenery 1 and 20, Chenery 2, during World War, the United States Supreme Court said it was permitted to, to charge and convict American citizens of remaining in California or Oregon, in this case, Mr. Karamatsu had stayed in Oregon, against this military order that was affecting only Japanese, people of Japanese heritage, including U.S. citizens, of which there were no questions of his loyalty. So he he was convicted of, of, of illegally staying in Oregon as a Japanese-descended American citizen, and the Supreme Court said that's okay. If we ever have the, the chance to have that kind of frank discussion with people who want to defend the Democrats as the party that yeah. is the side that's of goodness oh, and light and, 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 and not one that's in favor of racism. This was eight out of the nine justices were appointed by FDR at this point. Well, I think, you know, you can kind of just go back to the Lincoln and prove that, but okay. Yeah. 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 So that case, just to put it in perspective, this is what's going on around the world war two era. 
And so kind of the way I want to think about this and what I wanted to cover today in a few more cases, just to give a sample of some other ones is by that point in time, it had become accepted in the, in law schools and in the judiciary that the federal government needed to have these big powers. Think about what's politically going on around this time, Monica. There was, there'd been the great depression. Then we had a vast world war. We had six or 7 million people serving in uniform, fighting in, in the Pacific and the you know, Atlantic, North Africa, everywhere. And then when that war ended, only a few years, you know, within just a matter of two or three years, the Berlin Wall was starting to be built and the, an iron curtain fell off, fell across Europe and the Soviets had taken over, you know, all the countries now that those kids in their 20s and 30s didn't realize used to be part of the Soviet Union. Every, you know, Ukraine, Poland, East Germany, uh, the Latvia, Lithuania, all those places. So the Cold War is in place. There's the real possibility of worldwide destruction. We need to have a military industrial complex to fight that. That was the idea. And so that's what the, they I, said. Yeah. That was part of it. And so in order to have the, the, the ability of the federal government to handle these complex problems, we need to basically give the administrative state a lot of power and get out of the way of things like the idea of the separation of powers, the non-delegation doctrine. What's the non-delegation doctrine? Well, very quickly, that's originally the Supreme Court had said back in the 1800s that if Congress is granted the power to make laws under the Constitution, under Article One, how can somebody else make laws? Right. Can they create this other board over there to create laws? Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court had said, no, it's in the Constitution. It has to be Congress. They have to pass it by a majority. And they had that it has to be signed by the president. And then eventually, uh, some cases came along that we've talked about previously where the Supreme Court said, okay, it's okay to, as long as under your law, you create this agency that you give an intelligible principle to follow, they can create regulations. And that's created the opportunity for this regulatory state. And Chenery is where it goes even so far as once Congress has created an agency over uh, utility uh, corporations. They can totally make up the rules, not only by putting out regulations, but they can do it during the administrative adjudicatory process. That's how bad it is. That's bad. So we end up going through this uh, time period in the 40s and 50s and 60s where everybody just kind of accepts this. Um, it wasn't so it wasn't long after FDR died that Truman got to appoint a couple people, um, but the the. Once Eisenhower became president, we had a Republican. The first person he appointed was Earl Warren, and we got the Warren Court. And just a little bit of side history before we get into this, just to kind of get us through this next uh, period of time, Earl Warren was not a famous judge. He was one of the few times it wasn't a famous judge appointed to the Supreme Court. He was former governor of California. He was a, very much a politician. And he kind of recognized that the, the, the Supreme Court kind of has a role in modeling society and molding society. And, 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 and so there became this time period where the Supreme Court was very active in protecting individual rights. That's what the Warren Court is famous for. Things like the Miranda case that says you have to get a warning. Uh, all the cases having to do with search and seizure. You remember from criminal law, the Brady case that says that the prosecutor has to turn over evidence of, that they have that shows you didn't yes. do the crime. Yes. All of those kind of cases. Evidence. Yes. Ab ab absolutely. So all those cases came out of the Warren Court. But the Warren Court just kind of kept rubber stamping executive agencies. And that kept happening uh, all the way through the second half of the 20th century. Well, by the 1980s, um, the 
by the 1980s, it had become so well accepted that even under Ronald Reagan, the Supreme Court, with some of his appointees on it, were still basically ignoring the Constitution. And that's kind of one of where I jumped today. It was just to give an example of three or four cases from the mid-80s that talk about how uh, how far the deep state had basically gotten its tentacles into the Constitution, into the Supreme Court. So the next case I want to talk about is Chevron versus the Natural Resources Defense Council. This is an Environmental Protection Act case. What year was and it, did you say? This was in 1984. So this is smack in the middle of Ronald Reagan's uh, eight years. The same time... It's the same year that Gal Gadot is supposedly Wonder Woman in the Wonder Woman 1984 movie, if you have saw that recently, <laughs> where, they, where they show Ronald Reagan as being a warmongering, horrible guy. I think they really kind of... He ended the Cold War. He kids made today are going to watch that movie and think Ronald Reagan was a warmonger. He wasn't a warmonger. I remember they used to... He was or was not? He was not, but in that yeah. movie, they make it look like he's gleefully adding more nuclear weapons to the stockpile because he wants to blow everything up. It's just I, know, I, I used to love Ronald Reagan, and I will say, like when you look at that prosperity and you compare it with a chart of the national debt, I kind of feel like a lot of it was illusion. But I still, I mean, we were happy lying to it. Might as well have them. You know, it would actually increase productivity to be lied to so nicely. But Linda Carter was Wonder Woman back there, and I know because I've been told I looked like her. So I was pretty I can excited see that. by that. I can see yeah. That. So I mean that she was the eighties Wonder Woman as far as I'm concerned. She was the real Wonder Woman of the eighties, but they yes. made a movie starring Gal Gadot yes, called yes, Wonder yes, Woman nineteen eighty four. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the year of this case. <laughs> okay. Well Just we won't forget it, it now. Like yeah. not that there's any other mnemonic for nineteen eighty four, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Not like there's nothing nothing else was ever predicted <laughs> to happen that year. So the issue in this case was Actually, Ronald Reagan's agencies trying to claw back some of the power of these federal agencies. But in doing that, they ended up creating a rule that gave federal agencies a crap ton of power. And the concept in, is was that, that whether the Environmental Protection Agency could require an individual factory, power station, whatever, to regulate each source of emissions so that there, when there was construction or repairs, that the amount of pollutants from each source did not increase. And the way that it had been interpreted under the Environmental Protection Act for a few years, which was passed in the 1970s, so it wasn't that old, was that each factory might have, let's say it had three smokestacks. Well, once you got those to the level that passed the EPA, if you wanted to build a fourth smokestack, that individual smokestack had to also pass the same test and couldn't increase emissions. If you had a separate uh, way of, of being, you know, spitting water out with with chemicals in it into the river, you couldn't build something new that had an additional source of pollutants that each individual smokestack, each individual water pipe, whatever, had to be regulated separately. And so Ronald Reagan's EPA comes in and says, OK, we want to interpret the word source to mean like the source being the whole factory. Yes. Or the whole water plant or the whole industrial complex or the whole power plant. And that way, if somebody owns a power plant in California and they want to build three new smokestacks that are all really, really environmentally better than the three old ones, and then they want to shut down one of the old ones, and so the plant would be net neutral in terms of pollutants, they don't even have to have the EPA show up to check on it. They don't have to get permission. They don't have to comply with anything. 
as long as it's in fact net neutral, they can use this source rule to be means the whole source of the whole plant. So this environmental group, the Natural Resources Defense Council, sues to say, no, 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 no. You can't change the interpretation of the rules that way. You can't read the word source to mean the whole plant. It has to mean each individual source. The Supreme Court, I think, wanting to go in the right direction to help the Reagan administration, rules in the Reagan administration's favor that that's a reasonable reading of the of the rules. The problem is the reasoning they give is another one of these giant Mack trucks were going through a loophole in the Constitution and just giving all this power to the administrative states because what they rule is that the agency's interpretation of its own regulations and its own, well, actually, in this case, it's its own organic statute. The statute that Congress says to create the EPA and says, here's the rules you, you can enforce, that the agency's interpretation is to be given deference. <laughs> what that means to you and me as lawyers is that the agency is allowed to interpret its own rules and its own rules get interp get interpreted the way it wants to be. So when when under the what, what would the founding fathers say about that? Well, if, if we shouldn't even be, have rules be created by an agency, and we shouldn't have an agency enforcing those rules, and we certainly shouldn't have an agency having hearings and deciding who wins. The hearing should be in front of a judge that's appointed under the rules in the Constitution. The enforcement should be done by a department of the president who's just it's the law enforcement. That's fine. That's what the president can do. And the creating rules is supposed to be done by Congress. Well, we know from Chenery that it's okay for agencies to have all three powers. And now what we know from Chevron is that when the agency is trying to decide what it's what the scope of its power is, its interpretation of its own rules is given deference. So the courts can allow the agencies to decide for themselves how much power they have, what they can regulate, what rules they can write. If you don't like what they're doing to your if they want to pass a rule that says uh, certain types of podcasts are not allowed and they want to come regulate your podcast and you go and you end up having to sue that agency, the agency gets the benefit of the doubt under Chevron. And if they can read their rules to say, hey, we're allowed to interpret this, that, you know, no Stanford grads are allowed to have podcasts anymore. That's a reasonable interpretation. <laughs> right. So that's I mean, that, that's how loose the rules are. So Chevron just opens the floodgates for the agencies to now have their own interpretation of their own rules. So when Congress creates an agency and says you're allowed to do A, B, and C, but not D, if they're not clear about D, the agency can do D too. And it can certainly do E and F and G if there's nothing saying it can't do those as an interpretation of its own rules. Just as a quick footnote, in a follow-on case, Auer versus Robbins in 1997, which was a case interpreting the Fair Labor Standards Act and whether police officers that work for the state fell under those rules, if they were sergeants and lieutenants, did they get to be paid a salary was the question. Then the Supreme Court even goes as far as to say, not only do agencies under Chevron get the power to interpret their own statute, the law created by Congress, but they also get total control over interpreting their own regulations. They get the most deference that you can give them interpreting their own rules that they've created. So if they want to create a rule that it changes by by enforcement, who counts as an exempt person who gets overtime, and then they want to interpret that totally differently the next year and say these people are no longer exempt and you have to pay them overtime, total deference to the agency. So that's those two cases that came out. One, uh, 84 was Chevron and 1997 was the Hour case. 
Stella wants to chime in. Agencies creating their own rules and investigating themselves is just being efficient. It's very admirable. She's she's shouting out from down under. Yeah. Agency, yeah. The love. idea that agencies are being efficient and need to have the authority <laughs> to do that is is, a, is still essentially the, the modern progressive argument. You're supposed to have these big agencies figure this out because it's a complex world. But it, it is so clearly outside the Constitution, so clearly outside the Constitution that the day I showed up in, cons- in a- administrative law, I took a class in administrative law, the professor said, I don't want to hear about the Constitution in this class. I will stipulate that it is probably unconstitutional. It is clearly unconstitutional. And the and, and this, that the Supreme Court would even uh, address the nuances is already stipulating that it's valid. It's absolutely outrageous to have a legislative and judicial function under, it's the executive branch, right? So it's all under the executive branch. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, they're under the executive branch, but they have the authority of all the, all three branches in one place. I'm saying the executive branch, just by its name alone, it makes it clear that it is not making rules, but they say it's making rules to execute. I guess, did I miss this? Do, do, Do does Congress establish these regulatory bodies and give them to the executive branch? That's how it works. Yes. Right? That's, and that's, that's how, the, that's how it works. Right. That's how it works. So, and that was, we talked about it a couple episodes ago. Yeah. I forgot the name of the case, but it was basically in, in the 1890s. And again, in the early 1930s, there was Carrollton products is one example of this. I think that's the name of the case, but essentially what the Supreme court says is as long as there's an intelligible principle, in the bill where Congress creates the agency telling the agency what its rules are, we're going to allow the agency to exercise the authority to create rules and to have the authority. Congress can delegate to an agency the ability to create rules that have the force of law, even though the Constitution clearly says that's a power reserved to Congress. And then so then and then it's an important point about this, that the president ends up having control over these. And it's one reason why I think Americans are so polarized and upset about who wins the presidency. There's something like 1,400 different positions that require the advice of the Senate for the president to appoint somebody. That's just the senior leadership in all these agencies. Wow. There's something like, if somebody tried to count, go ahead. They reappoint them too. So that's why we have this perpetual administrative state that doesn't actually change with every president in a lot of cases. Right. And because of the civil service reforms that happened in the late 1880s, uh, it becomes impossible to fire people. So like, for example, my friend who works at the Department of Labor told me that the paralegals that work under his office are are permitted to have basically unlimited breaks and they have under their contract the right to have a TV on their desk. Imagine (laughs) imagine how how much work they get done. I just I remember interviewing John Lott, who I'm I I really respect him. He went uh Thomas Sowell was his teacher. He wrote the book. John Lott wrote the book, More Guns, Less Crime, and other stuff, too. But his research is really, I mean, ridiculous, like Thomas Sowell-level stuff. And Trump put him in in a a role, and he when he was in there, I guess it was in the FBI or something like that, something like that, Department of Justice, and they just laughed at him when he asked for things. They're like, we're Democrats. We're not helping you. <laughs> yeah. You know? it, it takes having Power a change in leadership basic. for long enough. Long enough, yeah. And also with a level of competency. You need to understand how all this works. The Kind of a side note to all this. One problem modern Republicans have digging into all this is because Republicans don't come up being experts in how to manipulate the government. That's more of a Democrat traditional role into, into power. So if you're the president, you say, I want to get rid of the deep state. 
what's your expertise in getting in, in dealing with those administrative right. cases? I mean, you would, you I would, thought, yeah, yeah, I thought that that would be a problem with Trump. Like he would say he would do that and then he would prove that the administrative state is too complicated for an outsider. Yeah, I don't think it's too complicated for an outsider generally, but I think what he needed to do was round up the right people, like get some people from yeah, you know, the, federal, the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, wherever else you might find yeah. those kind of people who are experts at the administrative state who also buy into your vision of where can we start clawing some of this back? Yeah. You know, you know I'll but raise my hand. Next Republican president wants, competent Yeah, yeah. Next, next Republican president wants some help. Listen to my podcast. <laughs> yes, we'll, you, you we'll can be in the shadow, the shadow cabinet. You yeah. should be in the cabinet. I'd vote for you. Well, I guess we don't get to vote for the in, cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this next case I think is really important to talk about because it, it also talks about the vast expanse of federal power and federal agencies, but it does it in a way that I think clearly sets out what's wrong with the, the creep in the, in the decline of the Constitution. So let's cover this basic rule. Article 1, Section 8, says these are the powers of Congress. And we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. There's 18 bullet points in there, 18 clauses. If you count it, depends on how you count it, there's 26 or 27 different powers in Article 1, Section 8. When the Founding Fathers set up the Constitution, the whole idea was the general police power of a government, the sovereign power delegated by the people to the legislature and to the governor, rests at the state level. A state can do what it wants to to regulate just about anything as long as it doesn't violate our rights. But they can regulate what's the consent age to get married, what's the definition of negligence in a car wreck case, all these kind of things that are limited to, to state control. Whether you can build on a certain piece of land, for example, that those are the things that are supposed to be limited to the state. If, if the federal government is going to get involved, it has to be on this list. And we also know from the Tenth Amendment, which basically the, the basically backs this up. This was something the founding fathers insisted on in putting in the Constitution that if a power is not listed in the in the Constitution, then it is retained uh, to the states or the people, respectively. Right. So the whole idea is has to be on this list. All right. Let's dig into how that's been interpreted a little bit. United States versus versus Riverside Bayview. The question is, this developer, Riverside Bayview Homes Incorporated, in Michigan, wanted to start filling in some lowlands on his property that he was going to develop some houses on in 1985. It was not attached to any water of the United States. It was not attached to a lake or anything, but the property was near Lake St. Clair, Michigan. The EPA comes in and says, you can't fill that in because that's a wetland and that's water that we have control over. Now, let's take a step back. Where in the Constitution could Congress have the law, have the power to pass a law telling somebody what they do on their private property if they just want to put some dirt in a low-lying spot that happens to get a little wet sometimes and be designated a wetland? Where does it say in the Constitution that Congress even has that power? Well. <laughs> so... And the answer to that question is, it starts in 1824 when the Supreme Court was saying, okay, in Article 1, Section 8, one of the powers that Congress has is the power to regulate interstate commerce. So if you want to sell your oh, eggs across... this the, again. Yeah, that's this again. <laughs> like the wheat field. It's Yikes. like the wheat field case we talk about from the 1930s, that if you want to sell your eggs 
and you uh, you have chickens in New Jersey and you want to take them to New York City and uh, New York tries to say, well, we're going to put a tax on eggs coming from New Jersey. That's one of the things you can't do under the Commerce Clause that the federal government could step in and say, OK, if you're going to ship your eggs across state lines, we might create a rule that says you have to ship them within three days. So they say fairly fresh or something like that. That would fall into the idea of regulating interstate commerce. And one of the things that they decided early on was if it's a navigable waterway and back in the 1800s when you didn't have even trains yet uh the idea how did you get around what was the fastest way to move anywhere on the planet well by horse no the fastest way is by ship and crossing the atlantic still would take three months in a sailing ship in the 1800s 1810s 1820s 1830s railroads steam engine was just getting invented in great britain by the 1820s and 1830s the first locomotives in the United States didn't get here until the late 1830s. So the only real way to move around in this, then this is in 1824 in a case called Gibbons versus Ogden, which you might also remember from constitutional law class. In 1824, the Supreme Court says that under the commerce power, that we're going to extend the commerce power to say that the federal government has the power to regulate navigable waterways. And what's the rationale behind that? That if you have ships going between yeah, states, they cross over borders. Right, they cross over borders. That fits within the, the the regulating interstate commerce. The problem with that is that ultimately, uh, under the Environmental Protection Act, they said that the that the Environmental Protection Agency has the ability to not only regulate. Uh, navigable waters, but any other waters that have a nexus to a navigable water. And the original argument was... That's everything on Earth. That's that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, you've skipped ahead my next three or four sentences. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, so the, the original idea is... The more they, you explain, the less I'm going to understand. So what they said was, all right, if you if you can regulate the Hudson River, what about a swamp on the side of the Hudson River that's not navigable but it feeds into the Hudson River. If you build too much stuff there, you could conceivably block off the Hudson River. So we're gonna, we're gonna, the Supreme Court's gonna say, okay, in order for this to be constitutional, it has to be a navigable waterway. And later on, they say, but something right adjacent to a navigable waterway counts as a navigable waterway. All right. So the EPA then takes this idea of saying, well, it has to have a significant nexus, and turns around and says. Well, if it's water that's standing water inland from any navigable waterway, but it seeps into the ground and then eventually feeds a navigable waterway, now we can regulate that too. So we've gone all the way from the commerce power being used to create this federal power to regulate navigable waterways to then in turn using navigable waterways to be interpreted so broadly that it includes wet patches where the water might seep into the groundwater and eventually flow into a navigable waterway. And that's what ends up happening in the, in the case the United States case in the case of the United States versus Riverside Bayview. That the waters of the United States basically includes uh, whatever the agency wants to define as wetlands that have a nexus to a navigable waterway. Um, there was a later Supreme Court case in 2006 called Rapinoe's versus United States that even went on to say basically that if it was an intermittent stream, uh, a prairie pothole, 
Oh my gosh. This is in 2006? 2006. Now, what happens in the 2006 case, and just hold this for a future podcast when we talk about modern cases, is the Supreme Court ultimately has a 4-1-4 decision that there is no majority opinion defining where you draw the line on the nexus uh, relationship to a navigable waterway. And there's a recent Supreme Court case that's been taken up take taken up that's going to address that so that nexus the 414 is not rapanos that's rapanos is the 414 case okay that's the 2006 case we'll do that next time so uh rapanos and then the all right so save this for next time and then there's also a case i don't know if you heard about in the news uh back to the chevron case we just did previously previously where there's uh some fishermen that are saying uh i shouldn't have to pay to have the inspector out on my boat the Supreme Court specifically said, uh, we're taking that up to, to address whether Chevron actually allows the agency to interpret the agency, that the, the, the regulations that way to, to decide who has to pay for the inspector to go out on a fishing vessel. So save that too. That's, a, that's another one that might change some of these um, without getting is too that, far ahead. Wait, is that, is that on the docket or is that? It's, clear, it's just got accepted. Cert was, cert was granted just recently. For those who don't know what it is, we're talking lawyer talk. Certiary is the <laughs> is the uh, the provision. If if I want the Supreme Court to take my case, if my, I've been denied by the Court of Appeals, I have to petition for a writ of certiary, and the Supreme Court may or may not agree to take my case. They only take a couple hundred cases a year, yeah. and if they grant it, they grant a petition for a writ of certiary. And what we lawyers say is, well, they've granted cert, and so yes, they've just they've granted cert on two cases already that affect what we're talking about. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have more to come when we talk about what's before the Supreme court. <laughs> yes. All right. Next important case. And this one's also from around the same, same time frame. I know Monica, you are decades younger than me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I might be older than you, Eric. I graduated from high school in 1985. <laughs> so this one, next one affects I'm me. I'm not older than you. <laughs> this next one affects me deeply. <laughs> so don't tell anybody how old you are, Monica, but I am going to tell never. you. <laughs> That I was personally offended, shocked, and scarred for life that when I was about a junior in high school, they changed the drinking age from 19 to 21 when I was about 18. Well, I used to sneak into bars when I was 13, and yes, the drinking age was 18, and there was no photo on the driver's So I would go with my sisters. I have five older sisters, and the older ones would pass their licenses back to the ones behind. So they would we'd literally show the same license to the guy, but there were no pictures or anything. So he was just looking at the year. I guess we looked like quadruplets or whatever, but yeah. We had, anyway. yes, we had the same thing in Tennessee. <laughs> we had paper licenses that didn't have a picture on them, uh, even when I was in high school. And it was around the time the technology got good enough that you could run them through a copy machine. Yes. And they even had the little strip of the extra numbers on top. Yeah, nice. That you could peel off and you have the same font ready to go. And all you do is run it through a copy. Anyway, the technology wasn't ready yet. Bad, yeah, this Eric. Is, bad. Hopefully, hopefully the statute of limitations has grown on any. I, Definitely any. has. Definitely has. Trust me, I know. <laughs> the point is that uh, all of a sudden, everywhere in the country, you look around when I was in high school and I'm ready. Oh my gosh, I can drink in a couple years. Oh no, sir. We're going to raise the drinking age nationally to 21. How in the hell is the federal government going to raise the drinking age nationally? Right. Where in the constitution? Well, I know what they did. <laughs> yes. So where in the constitution does it say that Congress has the power to regulate the drinking age in any given state? The answer is nowhere. It maybe did under the 18th amendment, which was the one for prohibition. Uh, but that was repealed by the 21st Amendment. And so basically the power 
reverted to the states to regulate alcohol consumption. And so if the state of Georgia wants to say you can drink when you're 17 or 18, uh, if the state of Hawaii wants to keep it at 21, that's their own business. They can decide what the drinking age is. Except, here's what the federal government did. They passed a law that said if states don't change their drinking age to 21, something we don't have the authority to regulate, we're going to withhold 5% of their federal highway funds. That case gets to the Supreme Court in 1987. So here we are still right, you know, 80, we had 84, we had 85, now we're 1987. And the case is South Dakota versus Dole. And the court essentially says that if you spend money, that money is not unconstitutional. That spending power is not unconstitutional. And the federal government has the power to decide how it wants to spend money as long as it sets out clear rules and gives notices to the state ahead of time, even if it impinges on something that is otherwise a traditional state power. If it tells you ahead of time? Yeah, so the rule, so basically they set up this test that basically says if the rule has to be clear. Right. And that the rule That's has- That's ridiculous. To, that has nothing to do with anything. No. That doesn't justify taking rights away. It does not. Here, I'll, I'll, let me read the actual test they did just so our audience is clear about this. Yeah. The spending power must be in pursuit of the general welfare, which is what's required in the Constitution. Oh, come Article on. Article 1, Section 8, a requirement the court left to Congress's judgment to satisfy, in its view, the concept of welfare- is shaped by Congress. Now, what does that mean? I think that decide. essentially makes it non-justiciable, that it's a political question. Oh, interesting. That and that was, that was a Supreme Court decision that said that? Yes. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so basically there's no limit on the spending power. Then they say, second part of the test, whether the conditions imposed were unambiguous, so the states know what they're agreeing to, three, whether they were related to a particular national project or program being funded, well, they're related to the highway program, which doesn't maybe has something to do with the drinking age because people might drink and drive. And they made the argument, well, if we don't make the national drinking age 21, if you keep it 19 in South Dakota, people might drive over from North Dakota, which means they're going to be driving on the interstates. Oh, Therefore, this is related to the power to spend money on the interstates. That They're working on that for the Second Amendment, for sure. Yeah. And by the way, there's not even power in the Constitution to build interstates. That had to originally be done as a national defense project. Tell me about, oh, that that's what they said it was for. But hey, man, I would say, I would argue that building a, a network of arteries that give access to the interior is counter-defensive, but it's yeah, arguable. We got to get our tanks to the front lines, Monica. Just trust well, us. Well, they have to get their tanks to <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the number four of the test is whether there are constitutional provisions that provide an independent bar to the conditional grant of federal funds. For example, Congress could not impose as a condition on the state receiving federal funds on its welfare programs if it required welfare recipients to uh, waive their Fourth Amendment rights. So it did at least say you can't use the spending power to overcome a specific constitutional right. The problem I have as a constitutional scholar is, but the constitutional rights in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment basically say if it's not in the Constitution, you don't have the power to do it. So our constitutional yes. rights are to not have Congress right. do something that's not on the list. See, that's what I say the Bill of Rights is, is the Bill of Rights is a restraint. The enumerated powers are the enumerated powers, and that's it. They're, everything else is in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment goes to the states. Yeah. 
before the end of school. All right. There's one more I want to talk about, and let me find the case. Here it is. All right. Last case I want to talk about, and I don't know if you remember this one. This happened uh, while I was in law school. I think I went to law school a little later than you did, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, 1996, Bennis versus Michigan, the the car seizure case. Do you remember this? I don't know. Remind here's me. The, here's the facts. Mr. Bennis, without his wife's knowledge, takes the family car to downtown Detroit and hires a woman who is available on the street to perform certain services. Oh, my car. goodness. Eddie Murphy style? Yeah. So uh, I don't rem- I remember um, Hugh Grant. I don't remember Eddie Murphy. Uh, I think Eddie Murphy, he... he uh, Did he? It was some. It was even more complicated than that. We won't get into. Yeah. It. Well, this one's this one. I think is pretty straightforward. Without his, this is a key point to this. Without his knife wife's knowledge or permission, <laughs> <laughs> he goes downtown Detroit and engages the services of a woman who's willing to engage in sexual uh, acts for a fee in violation of of Michigan state law. They get caught. In addition to charging him with whatever the the fine is for engaging in in the hiring of prostitution, they also seize the family car. Right, right. So they seize the family car that is co-owned by his wife, who everyone agrees is 100% innocent, has nothing to do with this, and in fact would not have approved of this had she known about it. He was using it against her will. And the Supreme Court rules that seizing that property in a civil asset forfeiture proceeding is not a violation of the constitutional right of due process before they deprive you of your rights because he was committing a crime. And the fact that the wife was an innocent party to this doesn't matter. They're still allowed to seize the property. Now, what's interesting about this is the decision basically was Four justices says, no, the Constitution needs to protect us. She was innocent. You can't seize her property without due process law. Four justices dug down into the weeds and talked about things like maritime shipping seizures in the 1800s and, and the history of, of seizing uh, unclaimed property and civil asset forfeiture for violation violating the law and gets into this old history of stuff that arguably doesn't really address the question, which whether the due process clause protects this from happening. The one judge who's standing alone, Justice O'Connor, essentially says, I concur. I don't necessarily agree that this case should be controlled by the old maritime law, but I'm not too worried about the Constitution applying because the wife's value of her car was only $300. That doesn't make sense. That's essentially what she says. That the value and interest here is too small for us to be worrying See, about. But but the problem is that opens the floodgates to that a, a limitless asset forfeiture, for example, where big money and also you know just no limits to the power. That's essentially correct. That's my. That's why I'm bringing this case up because Justice O'Connor, a Reagan appointee, didn't think about the principle behind what what was really going to be the holding of this case, but instead she kind of took the practical approach. Practically, why is this a big hoo-hoo? It's but she was just doing that. She was just saying that. It's just a $300 value they of the car. They were poised to make that asset forfeiture a big moneymaker, and she did not want to stand in the way, in my opinion. that, that The cynical be, reading of that would be that it was in, on purpose. 
No. My my less than cynical reading All is right. that uh, I just don't think she quite understood uh, the implication of it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, plausible. Can, can, can I give you one other example of something similar to that? And I will wrap it up with this one. Okay. Uh, okay. Bowers versus Hardwick, and this was not on my list. I wasn't going to talk about it, but it's okay. so similar to this. Bowers versus Hardwick was the case that Georgia still had a law that said uh, it, it could be a punishable crime for people to engage in homosexual yeah, sodomy even one. in the yeah. privacy of their own home. Yeah. And so, even though we'd already had by the time that Bowers versus Hardwick was decided, we already had uh, the the uh, Roe versus Wade had already been decided, establishing a, a privacy right. We also had the Connecticut. Uh, case that said that Connecticut could not outlaw the sale of contraceptives. That was a protected privacy right. We also had cases holding that the the using pornography in the privacy of your own home, even if it was for purely pure interest, it was real pornography. Once you got it to your home, as long as it wasn't child pornography, it was just regular right. pornography, that was protected under the privacy interest. Wow. But Georgia has a law that says two men cannot engage, and actually it said two people of the same sex mm-hmm. could not engage. And what they defined as sodomy was even more than the common law definition. Mm-hmm. Placing the male sex orifice into the male sex organ they- into the orifice of another human being penetration, however slight, is sufficient to complete the offense. Wow, they and were that, that <laughs> detailed. Wow. That was the, that's the common law definition. They had expanded oh, on that. Law. Oh wow! They, but they they just, just, isn't it so one of those things where it's like I'm not going to explain it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, so sodomy basically was what I just said. The common law defin- what definition was a man could only only a man could commit sodomy under the old rules, right? And only by doing it with either a man or it would still be sodomy. Oh, if, if even if, if it was a woman, if he put his yeah, male sex it. organ into the orifice of another yeah. human being, <laughs> other than the female sex organ, right. and it's wow. like sufficient to complete the offense. Anyway, so in but Georgia had expanded right. it to essentially outlaw most consensual homosexual behavior that case gets to the supreme court and this and this happened in the early 80s it would have been around the same time as these other cases we were talking about and the supreme court again goes four four and one four justices say the right to privacy that's in that's essentially found in the constitution is one of the implied uh things in the Bill of Rights, the same thing that supports the right to buy contraceptive, the right to engage in uh, reading pornography at home, that kind of stuff, that would protect the privacy rights of people of the same sex to engage in this kind of consensual behavior, assuming that they're consenting adults. Four justices said, no, there's nothing in the Constitution protecting homosexual activity, that it's not a guaranteed right, it's not equal protection, it's something that's traditionally been regulated by the states, and absolutely the state can regulate that. And the ninth justice kind of pulled a Justice O'Connor. This was Justice Powell. And Justice Powell basically said, I don't think it should be punished that bad. I think there might be an argument that it's a violation of the Eighth Amendment right against excessive uh, punishments, but I don't see it as something that the states can't regulate. Boom. It's still being. So in 1986, I just remembered, is when that case was decided. And so in 1986, it became law of the land in the United States that conservative states that wanted to outlaw homosexual behavior could still do that based on a 4 4 and 1 decision that essentially is using that same kind of rationale. And the, and the reason I honestly believe that, that Supreme Court justices sometimes still think these things through is there's a famous interview in one of the magazines not long after. There's like Us magazine or something, just normal people or whatever, 
one of Justice Powell's law clerks after he retired said that she had a long talk with him afterwards and said, Your Honor, because of your ruling, you've just made it so the United States is still one of those countries where homosexuality can be outlawed. You have made that a permanent thing for years to come because that's what it means when the Supreme Court rules like this. And he basically admits, I didn't think about that way. I was just looking at the facts of the case. I don't know, man. Um, I don't know. That could be an urban legend to make it seem like unintended consequences. I don't know. I Yeah, that's that's my take that I think it, there are there are times when the Supreme Court okay. justices should know better. And I think there's times that they are just they're, they're so already wrapped up in their heads that I'm just going to look at the facts of this case. But then also this broad understanding from mid 20th century that, hey, the Constitution really doesn't matter anymore. It just became so ingrained and, in the law schools of the 20s, 30s, 40s, yes. 50s and 60s. Yes. That, that it, it, it's taken a long time before people have started standing up and going, hey, wait a minute. Does the Constitution yeah. really say that? I think that they would. I think it's fair to say that they would knee jerk give latitude to an administrative body or government. Like I would say that they might not think it through because they're too lazy to think it through. And the knee jerk, the default is to expand the regulatory power or whatever. Like, so I could see that. Like, I didn't think about it because I didn't think about this at all. Not, I tried to think it through and I missed that. Like that, I don't, I don't believe. As opposed to uh, in the recent decision by, uh, uh, in the EPA versus West Virginia case, the one that says that the EPA does not have the power to regulate the whole of the electrical industry. This is a case from a couple of years ago. If you yeah. read that case, one of the interesting parts of in the dissent, Justice Kagan very clearly says, we shouldn't be doing this because the threat of global warming is so dangerous. And the ideas right. of, of not having the experts right. decide on global warming is so dangerous that Congress cannot and should not be trying to make these decisions on their own, which is why we right. need these agencies to basically have all the power they want to have. So there really is a progressive side of the Supreme Court justices, the ones who are true believers, that absolutely we should ignore the Constitution, that, there's, that the world is just too complex and too dangerous that we don't have these expert agencies solving all the problems. I'm going down one more rabbit hole for you. If you go back and read the report from Iron Mountain, which I've mentioned to you before, they talk about how you need global threats to expand power to the world level. I mean, I, I would say environmentalism was one of the things they were considering as a justification for expanding government power. So yes, this is the fallout that they, they capital T, trademark, they expected and wanted the people who wrote report from Iron Mountain. Not there's no, it's not an unknown they, it's those people and everything that the, the people who are in on it with them that they go out of their way to create and focus on problems like terrorism, uh, you know, environmental issues, stuff like that, in order to justify increasing power at the top to undermine the Constitution with this argument like international terrorism, like there's no way to deal with that in the Constitution. There's totally a way to deal with that. Literally, piracy is just these organized cross-border crime syndicates that do not fall under one government authority like that was anticipated it was probably more common then than it is now i'm just saying these problems they that these true believers feel like justify undermining constitution were created were fostered 
that you don't use the traditional remedies in order for them to get out of hand so that through your institutions, you can get these judges and stuff to think they're doing the right thing. Like I, I'll, I will, I'll give them that much of a benefit of the doubt, but I don't know. I wouldn't fall for so, it if I were in their position. Yeah. I'm with you. I don't think the, uh, we don't need to go too far down a rabbit hole and say the Iron <laughs> Mountain people predicted this because George Orwell comes right out and says yes. this is 1984. The whole idea of Oceania has always been a war with East yes. Asia is that there, you need to have this constant state of war, the state of emergency to permit the government to have these extreme powers and ignore the rules. And that's that, or George Orwell predicted that in, you know, in 1984 easily. So it, and I've I've heard the same thing that you know once COVID started winding down there there were several organizations that that came out and said now it's time to talk about global warming we need to oh, bring that yes. we need Here to bring that go. back up again so <laughs> I, I but the, my point is that there are just like if you read Justice Kagan's dissent in the EPA versus West Virginia case she is a true believer that global warming is this horrible threat and that we need to have these administrative agencies. Uh, in order to address those, and Congress just simply cannot have the expertise to do it. Therefore, we need to have the agency. So there is this element of the progressive people yeah. out there. Yes, they're not doing this to. No, to, they're to, true believers create, for sure. They're true yeah, believers, right? That. That's the, different the, from I didn't think of that. Right. There's right. There's a right. Then you have people like Justice Powell, who was appointed by by President Nixon, who was somewhat conservative, who just. Oh, I didn't think of that. Yeah, and, and I mean, I maybe think, they put in place people like people make fun of Justice Sotomayor. I don't know her, you know, I, I don't follow her stuff, but they're like, oh, she's she's she says, you know, eminent domain instead of eminent domain or whatever, right? So maybe people are put into place intentionally to make sure that they don't think these things through. Maybe the clerks are chosen more carefully than the justices sometimes. Like, so there's a lot of ways that this stuff can be manipulated. I never accept like the incompetence or the unintended consequences. I never believe that, that at some point we are always marching forward. Now, if it does turn around in a good way at the hands of Justice Thomas or whomever, then that would be great. And I'm very much looking forward to talking about the here and now and and maybe like looking ahead a little bit in our next conversation. But before we get to that, what did we leave out? And if nothing, then just remind people about the cool stuff that you do. Yeah, I mean, there's a this is not every case from the mid 20th century where the government basically took on too much power. I didn't even think about Bowers versus Hardwick until we got into this. And I'm sure there's a few more. I tried to keep it to a limited number. Um, but there's there's certainly some other cases we could talk about. I think the the, the last thing I want to kind of add is I think it did make a difference when people recognized that Reagan's appointees didn't really try to apply the Constitution strictly, that there became a focus of trying to get justices and judges who do. And one of the, I think one of the successes of the last 40 years has been the Federalist Society and the fact that the Federalist Society produces people who are jurists who actually say, hey, wait a minute, what does the Constitution actually say? And what did the founding fathers say about that? What were they meaning in the first place? That might be an important part of this. And I think part of that has 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 paid off in that we now have four for sure, maybe five of the six conservative Supreme Court justices who they think that way. And that's, that's a great part for us to, great uh, subject for us to talk about next time, that there's a little bit of hope there, I think. All right, I'm ready for hope. You know, I seem like the black yeah. pill, but like I am not. I'm always ready for hope. But you don't you don't believe in the inevitable march toward Marxism is actually going to get us no matter what. I, you know, I mean that's a legit question, and I feel like even Marxism was just 
this march towards corporatism. Um, you know, I feel like the economic ups and downs, even if you got there, it would collapse. What worries, you know, the real unsound economic foundations undermine themselves over a long enough timeline. What really worries me the most is this battle for the human soul. And I feel like screens, technology, surveillance, censorship, plus who knows, prophylactic gene therapy may contribute to the erosion of our very essence. But I think that there is a battle of souls. And I think the people at the top, yes, maybe I would like to think it was Marxism. I would like to think it was just economic, but I feel like the battle is for uh, human nature itself. And I think our only hope is that the people at the top really don't understand it because they don't recognize the soul. So I feel like we have a human nature that can triumph over this. And maybe we have to go through another freaking 70-year phase of bad economics and corporate governmental continuum, whatever. But as long as those those uh, we're not genetically altered, I think that we will triumph. So like not that, that, really a black pill. Yeah. The way my my disagreement would be, I think we may be reaching a peak of a cycle, and then there's a question whether we might turn it around sooner. That I'm would hoping. be great. I mean, I, I would love to see it. Although I will say, revolutions, even reactionary revolutions, can be pretty painful. But you know, I'm old. I can just, as my mother says, I'm a potted plant. If I sit around, you know, I mean, maybe I'll just like watch the world go by. Maybe a little. It's better to be a little older and just not care as much. But of course, we have our children. And, hopefully grandchildren so gotta yep. care yep. so okay so tell people remind people please if you wouldn't uh, mind to recap the cool stuff that you do and then we'll wrap it up and see you again next month you have a big month ahead of you so i'll leave you alone for a while yeah thanks monica so uh once again i'm eric buchanan uh, my law firm is eric buchanan associates in chattanooga tennessee we help people all over the united states who have been denied disability insurance long-term disability life insurance health insurance long-term care policies we can be found on the world wide web at BuchananDisability.com. Uh, and you can check out our other podcast. Clint Powell and I have a one on the Constitution called Of, By, and For the People Constitutional Deep Dives. And then another one every Monday, Clint, Matthew Durham, and I are having con constitutional and historical perspective conversations about current events. Of, By, and For the People is available on Apple Podcasts and several other platforms. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric Buchanan. Always a pleasure. Thank everyone for uh, listening. This has been a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Mm -hmm.